0: The following audio message by Dudley Hall is presented by Kerygma Ventures. More information is available at www.kerygmaventures.com. Well, Glory, this is Dudley. Good to be back with you again. Hey, uh, great subject this time, and uh, you're going to love it. Before we get into it, though, a couple of things you're also going to love. Upcoming in uh, April 27, 28, 29, is our annual Wild Man Texas for men and young men come and enjoy being in the outdoors and enjoy being with each other in a wonderful atmosphere of uh, love and camaraderie and silly competition. You don't have to be a great hunter, outdoorsman, athlete or whatever to win the competition. In fact, the, the guy who won the uh, world's champion pickle spitting contest didn't even consider himself an outdoorsman, but he's a good pickle spitter. And we have great great time together, men being men. And... Spend a good bit of time talking with each other, telling stories and whatever, and talking about what does a man mean to be a man. I wish every young boy at 10 to 15 years old could be there to sit around the fire and listen to real men talk about their stories and about what really matters in life. If you have some men that you love, send them to this. Call the office, go online. And register for the wild man. Bring a group. Bring a group from your church. I promise you, your men will be different. People are always crying out for, we need better men. We need men to take their role. And we need men to be men and not boys again. Okay, we're doing everything we can, but I need your help in getting people there. So, Father, bring your son. Uncle, bring your nephew. Uh, Bring your neighbor. Bring your buddy. Bring your brother-in-law. You've been... You know he's been needing some stuff. Bring your father-in-law. have been praying for him a long time. It, anyway, we'll have a great time at uh, at the Wildman. Then coming in July is our annual uh, leadership expedition. This is where we take young men, uh, 16 to 25, and really uh, take them through some uh, very intense training about leadership. Uh, if you know a young man who would like to do that, you need to uh, get him to go online at leadershipexpedition.org. And look at the video that we've done, so he knows what it is. And if he's interested, send us his name. You send us his name. Don't wait for him to do it. You do it. And give us the information, and then we'll send him a registration. We'd love to have him. We have been doing this for 20 years, 20-something 20 years. And we got young men all over the world leading out in every sphere you can think of whose lives were greatly impacted by leadership Expedition. Uh, it, it's taking the best of the SEAL training and the best of discipleship, the best of the message of the gospel, mixing it together and producing men, leaders. Join a gold line, look at it. Okay, oh yeah, I wanted to mention this to you also. Our uh, featured resource is a series I did not too long ago called The Kingdom Invades Culture. It's taking the book of Acts and showing how the kingdom message as unique and and volatile as it is, had invaded the culture of Israel and then Samaria and then the rest of the earth. And the book of Acts shows us how it does that. And it shows you how you, if you carry that message, can impact your culture. In fact, it's the only way the culture will be impacted. It's wonderful to pray for revival, to expect awakening. But if you're going to see it, God is going to raise up some people who are doing exactly what they did in the book of Acts. Uh, I think every Christian ought to study this and maybe this will help you, help you in your family. You can get it in video or audio and uh, or both and uh, it'll be a blessing to you. Okay, this month, I wanna to talk to you about mm, the good news. I know that's such a surprise to you. So Dudley, you're really not gonna to talk to us about the gospel, are you? Well, I think I will, because I think it is. it deserves to be mentioned. It deserves to be broadcast. Let me set it up for you this way. You know, I do these uh, some some bit of time before you get them. But uh, last night was the uh, this year's uh, State of the Union address by the president. And so he, he makes the state, state of the Union and he describes things. And of course, he's telling us the things that were accomplished that you know, he, he's been a part of and he's been behind. And so he's he's spinning things that way, which I, you'd expect him to. And then uh, afterward, then the opposing party gets to make their pitch. And so uh, young Joseph Kennedy, uh, one of the Kenny, Kennedy clan, gets to make the speech for the other side. And from his perspective, you would think these two guys are from two different countries there. Uh, they're not even looking at the same things. They're not even describing the same Reality—they're—they're they're not just—they're not just a little bit of heart. They're seeing opposite things, and so it—it it adds into the whole narrative that we are in in our culture today, and that is, who—who who can you believe? What—what what is the truth? What—who—who's who, telling the truth? Is anybody? Does anybody tell the truth without spinning it? I mean, it's as if the whole culture has taken what the old used car salesman used to have their spin and. And that's the way you do it today. And it's the one who spends the best, who gets the most people following them. But the one thing you certainly don't want to do if you want people following, is tell them the truth. You tell them a truth, your truth, a, and it's not even true a lot of times. So uh, it's affected the Congress. It's affected the president. It's affected media. It's even affected the pulpit. The pulpit, where truth should always go forth. And yet so much consumerism has gotten there that even the pulpit is confusing many times, too many times, where people are talking about their perspective of what the Bible's about or what God's about. And so it's it's a confusing time for us to live. So in the middle of that, would you like to know someone who tells the truth and truth that you can believe? Well, there, there is that truth. And we're going to look for it. We're going to find it in Isaiah. In fact, why don't you go ahead, if you uh, are in a position where you can turn in the scripture, because I'd like you to see it in your own Bible, uh, you go ahead and start turning toward Isaiah 52. But while you're turning, let me me set the stage for you in Isaiah. Isaiah lived in the 740 down to 700 BC. This was a time when Israel... Was uh, had been very prosperous, but they were beginning. They had started uh, violating the covenant with God, and and so Isaiah, the first thirty-nine chapters of his book, is all about the judgment that was that's going to come upon them because they are violating the covenant with God. God had made a covenant, and said, "I bless obedient people. Here's what I want you to obey." Gave them the covenant. But there's a curse that will come on disobedient people and they were disobeying. So God being faithful to his covenant was setting up judgment for them. And so the judgment that was going to come came in the form of Assyria, a great nation that finally had a ruthless leader who led them out of their own lethargy and they began to conquer, conquer the world as they knew it. And so, under Tiglath Pileser, this nation comes in and they they wipe out the northern tribes of of Israel, known as Israel, and and then later, a, a, an even more ruthless kingdom comes in Babylon and defeats Assyria and wipes out the southern kingdom five. Uh, of eighty six BC. So we have we have this Isaiah speaking to the people of God and saying this judgment is coming. Well it came and it was awful. Assyria was bad, but Babylon was worse. Under Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, all those guys, it the Israelites were treated as a class of people, less than animal. You see, the Babylonian story, the Babylonian narrative says that the way we got here is two gods got in a fight, a romantic fight, a jealousy fight, and one of them uh, killed the other and the blood ran out on on the earth. And that blood actually is what makes up the, the serving class, the slave class. And of course that was Israel. They had been made slaves. So they were treated as with no dignity at all. It reminds you of how our culture is being inundated with the evolutionary explanation of how everything's got started is that there was just uh, nothing and out of nothing came something and, and it developed and, and there's no dignity to it. It wasn't a personal God who made it. It's, uh, it's time plus slime equals you. Which doesn't give you a great deal of dignity. It just means you're kind of a higher, higher level of phylum class of biological life. And with that view of life, you don't, you know, have a sense of how valuable you are. Certainly don't see yourself as, as a son of God. So it's the same as with, with, uh, Israel, the Israeli people back then, is they, they saw themselves as slaves and on top of all the persecution, they were really treated terribly. Anybody in slavery is treated terribly, but these were treated terribly, they were, they were debased, they were abused, they were persecuted. They were, it's indescribable how they were abused. But added to that was the mental anguish and the spiritual anguish of knowing that they had they had violated the covenant with God, therefore they were guilty. And so they they bore the burden of guilt, and they bore the burden of shame. The the shame comes about. I am I deserve what I'm getting. And so with this, all of this on them, they they certainly life didn't didn't have much hope. And so in the midst of this, the prophet Isaiah comes, declaring the heart of God, and gives them some news. So now it's time for us to read the text of the day. And here it is, Isaiah 52, verse seven. Listen to this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now that'd be hard to believe, wouldn't it? You're under Babylon, You're under Nebuchadnezzar. You're under this rule. You're treated like trash or worse. And the prophet of God comes and says, God has some good news for you. Your God reigns. while you would have a hard time believing it. Just like today, we have a hard time believing that our God reigns. We have a hard time believing that Jesus really is at the right hand of the Father. In fact, there are a lot of theologians who say he's not yet. It'll be sometime in the future. He's not yet. He is already. After his resurrection from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sits there ruling as a man, ruling over everything his sacrifice paid for. But it's a hard time; it's a hard thing to believe when, when your life is beset by trouble, when you have shame and guilt, when you have fears, when when people are coming against you, when when your uh, physical surroundings are not comfortable or convenient, when when you're bankrupt, when you when your body's racked with disease. When your kids are, are not behaving, when your spouse is not acting right, when all any or all of these things happen, it's hard to look around and say, "Our God reigns." And yet, that's the uh, that was the message God gave to Israel. It's the heart of the gospel. Now, a lot of people would define the gospel in terms of, "Okay, the gospel's good news because Jesus died so that I could go to heaven." Okay, that's good news. Uh, Jesus died, that my sins could be forgiven so I could actually kind of enjoy this life while I'm going to heaven. Uh, yeah, that's good news. But if you don't get to the heart of it, you've missed the gospel. And the heart of it is your God, your God reigns. He rules. He rules over everything. To the Israelite, it meant he ruled over Nebuchadnezzar. He rules over Babylon he rules over time he rules over history he rules over nature he rules over everything he hasn't changed but but you see god has always wanted to have a people on the earth and he's wanted to rule on earth through that people god created adam adam and eve he put them in the garden to as kings his kings they were to rule over the garden and as they rule over the garden, they'd have more to rule over. they'd have children, they'd teach them they'd rule over it, and God's rulers on the earth would be humans. God's always intended for that, and so he still does and he he did so so today I want us to look at how did he how does he reign? What does it mean that he reigns? He reigns over what where is where does where do my choices fit in where does the devil fit in all, all that kind of stuff? So first of all, the the main point I want you to see is that the good news is always startling. Uh, I've said this before, I keep saying it. If when you hear the good news, you go, oh, well, that's nice. You didn't hear it. The gospel is not just nice. It's startling. It always startles. It's as startling today as it was to the Israelites back then. Your God reigns? What are you talking about? The kingdom of God is here. So the, the gospel, when heard, causes a, a revolution. A revolution, first of all, in the hearer, and then a revolution around the hero, and then a revolution through the hero to, to the rest of the world. It, it's God designed that way. So there's several things about what God was saying through Isaiah to the people, that's, that's what he's saying to us, and that is, Look. God rules over time and history. Remember when Isaiah had the vision? This is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, young, he he knows all about the theology of God, and yet he encounters the glory of God in the temple. And even the the hem of of God's garment was filled with such glory, it filled the whole temple. But the seraphim came and said, not only does he fill the temple, he fills the whole earth. His glory is fills the whole earth. There's not a molecule that he doesn't rule over. There's not an atom a quart, or whatever that he doesn't rule over. He rules over time. He rules over history. Through Isaiah we discover that God would use Assyria as a rod in his hand to judge Israel. Assyria didn't know it. Uh, They weren't voluntarily cooperating with God, but they were. They were a tool in God's hand. But then Assyria got too big for their britches and God said, I'll raise up Babylon to conquer Syria, Assyria. So he raises up Babylon. Babylon didn't know it. Babylon was a pagan nation. It was really pagan. God raised them up and used them as a tool in his hand to defeat Assyria. And then God said, yeah, Babylon's too big for britches. So he raised up Persia, basically Cyrus, the leader of Persia. And there's two or three chapters in Isaiah about God raising up Cyrus and calling him his anointed one and his chosen one that's going to do exactly what God said. He did all that without even knowing God personally as a redeemer because God is sovereign and he rules history. God had in mind a plan. He had told it to to Isaiah Upon his commission in Isaiah 6, he said, look, you're going to, first of all, you're going to preach to this, this generation. They're not going to take it. Judgment's going to come. It's going to burn everything down. But if you look in the middle of the burned out field of the nation of Israel, you'll find a stump, a single stump. And out of that stump will come a shoot. And out of that shoot will come a Messiah. And out of that Messiah will come a people that God will rule through to bless the earth. So God knew do exactly what he was going to do. And he knew the times. And so all of these nations are rods in his hand to accomplish what he said he was going to do. That should have brought some comfort to the Israelites in the middle of their mess, is that God's in charge of this. It doesn't look like it. And even the nations that God's using, they don't even know it, but God knows it. And he's, he's bringing it to fruition. So so he's, a, he's, he's over nature, he's over history, he's over time. And, and everything, even without God... It, interrupting the choices of men. He was, he was letting men make their choices. And yet he was able to take all the choices of men and weave them into a timeline that brought about his his purpose exactly at the right time. The, the main theme of the book of Isaiah, however, is chapters 40 and through 46. is talking about what's going to happen after the judgment when God restores his people, when when God starts preparing for that shoot, that root of David is coming out of uh, out of the stem of Jesse. That that shoot that that it comes out that produces his people. So he describes the servant. There are four songs in the book of Isaiah that talk about the suffering servant. The one we know, probably the best, is in Isaiah fifty three, where he's talking about the suffering of the servant, how he. Like a lamb before his shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth. And he has is, he is, uh, taken our sins and put them upon him and our iniquities and put them upon him and our transgression. And, and he became sin for us and he absorbed the wrath of God for us so that we would not have to face the wrath of God. And so he describes this great uh, act of this servant that you and I know is Jesus Christ, the one who who qualified to be the servant. See, to be the servant, you had to have certain qualifications. And only one man in history qualified. First of all, he had to be a man because God has chosen to work through man to bring salvation back to man. God had chosen not to fight the battle in the heavenlies alone, but he would fight the battle on the earth. You see, God is not going to win the battle by coming himself through angels or mortal saints, and winning the battle. He will win the battle through men. He started with Adam. He had a last Adam, a second Adam, a next Adam, and that Adam was Christ, a man. And it's through that man that God will win the victory. It won't be through some other extra extra person or personality or, or facility. So, so he had to be a man, and he was a man. Jesus was as much man as if he had been no God at all, but he was as much God as if he had been no man at all. It's the mystery of, of who Jesus was. But he came as a man. He also, to, to be qualified to be the servant to save both Adam's race and Israel's destiny, he had to be an Israelite. Because God had promised Israel that Israel would be his tool to bless the world. Israel had failed miserably, but God said, I'll I'll pick up your case. So he comes as an Israelite, Messiah, the representative of Israel. Jesus is the only one who qualifies as the perfect man and the perfect Israelite. And he came and he, he paid the price for our violations of the covenant, and he lived up to the covenant. You see, the covenant works like this. God says to to man. I will bless the obedient man. I don't bless disobedience. I bless obedience. Jesus said, I'll become a man and I'll be obedient so you can bless man. So Jesus is the one who lived up to the covenant. God bestows all of his blessings on Jesus. And the way you and I get them is by relating to Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus can confidently say, I'm the way to the Father. There is no other way except me. I'm the truth. I'm the way. I'm the life. Because I'm the only one qualified to fulfill the covenant and to bring blessings to the humans. So so the servant came and he paid the price and he God vindicated his sacrifice by raising him from the dead. Jesus arose from the dead, not only to conquer death, which he did, but it was a sign it was a it was a vindication of God Almighty to say, "I'll take his sacrifice as sufficient for all the sin that mankind has done. His sacrifice is sufficient there never there need never be another one for the for the sins of man. That's why there won't be any more sacrifices made, not legitimate sacrifices." the sins of mankind. Doesn't matter how many temples are rebuilt or whatever, God has already accepted the final complete sacrifice. Jesus, the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Son of Man, has already come. And so Jesus, he defeated, let's just go through it. On the cross, he paid for sin and broke the power of sin so that sin as a power, as a personal power, no longer has a right to keep you in prison. I, I know we've all experienced that uh, that that push, that tendency, that uh, I can't I can't stop it thing. God says, well, God through Jesus has broken the power of canceled sin. He also has crucified the flesh, that part of us that wants to live by earning things and and living by rules and laws and getting our own righteousness and demanding our own rights and and expecting our own rewards, all that's flesh, and, and that's crucified in Christ Jesus. And the law was fulfilled. So sin was dealt a death blow. The law was fulfilled. Death was conquered. And Satan was exposed as an accuser of the brethren. He too, just like Assyria and Babylon, whatever, is used by God for God's purposes and can only do what God permits him to do. So we're not living in this world worried about the devil and worried about God. We're just relating to God who reigns and the devil has to has to fit into what God does. Yes, the devil can attack you. But if the God is using the enemy to tempt you, attack you, test you, whatever, it's for your good and God still rules over it. Remember what he said to uh, Peter when uh, Peter was full of some self-deception. And Peter said, I'll never forsake you. There's not in me to do it. I would never forsake you. And Jesus said to him, the devil has asked for permission to sift you like wheat. And I've given him permission. The devil had to ask for permission. He still does. So is he still around? Yes. Is he still accusing? Yes. He still condemns? Yeah. If you got somebody foolish enough to listen. He still tempts? Sure. He's still around. Because God has chosen to leave mankind on the earth to win the battles that uh, he, he intends for us to win. He wants to show us that he has won the victory and that when we trust him, we believe him, we access his authority, his power in his name, we actually can win the battles and push darkness back. So, uh, so, so Jesus, the servant did all of that on the cross, so that you and I could be free. We could be free from the confines of sin. Sin always confines; it puts boundaries on you. It puts it puts bonds on you. It, it limits you. But but salvation frees you. It, it opens everything up to you. Now you're free to 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 be what you were created to be. You're human again. You're made human. You're not made in. You're not made to a god. You're made human. The devil is the one who offered you godship. God didn't say you were going to be a god. He said you're going to be a human. It's great to be a human when a human is living in the presence of God, as God's partner on earth, and has inheritance of everything God owns, and lives in God's presence and is God's representative on the earth. Why would you want to be a god? You are the king where God has placed you uh, as you live under his under His rule. You know, Paul said on one occasions, uh, you know, I, I do everything I can to win Jews, to, do, to win Gentiles, to the those under the law, I become as under the law, though I myself am not under the law, but I'm under the law of Christ. What, what he's saying is, yeah, I was freed from the, the, the law of Moses. I was freed from the reward punishment deal, but I'm under the law of Christ now. And the law of Christ sets me free. Absolutely free, not to do anything I selfishly want to do, but to do everything I was designed to do. That's a that's a magnificent freedom. So, so the servant did all of that, so that we could, uh, uh, so that we could be human again, so we could rule again. So, okay, so let's go back to the to the gospel. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross. He became sin for us. Sin was taken care of. Satan was exposed. Flesh was crucified. Law was fulfilled. And he defeated death. And after his defeat, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, who's in heaven today? You say Jesus. Yes, he is. Jesus as the man. The man, the second Adam, the last Adam. The one who is fulfilling what God designed Adam to to be. Adam and Eve to be. So he is ruling. God has won. He has through man bought salvation for man so that man in relationship with God can be his representatives on the earth. So that's what the kingdom of God looks like on the earth. So how does it work? Well, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sent back his gifts to us, to his people on the earth. We are given... The Word of God, as explained, illuminated by the Spirit of God. And the way we win our victories is with the sword of the Spirit. We don't fight flesh and blood. We don't fight with tanks and mortar. We don't fight with swords and guns. Not a not, not spirit, not spiritual battle, not the battle that matters. It's fought with the, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And each person, you, me, all all of you, God has has made you a a sword carrier. You have the word of God in you. If in fact, you've been born of God, because the scripture says you've been born of imperishable seed, the word of God. So you've been born by the very voice, the word of God. And so you're a sword carrier. The more familiar you get with his word, the more accurate you become with the sword, the more you're able to defeat these accusations from from hell. And the, every time you declare the truth of the word of God, you push back darkness. You push it back in your kids. You push it back in your neighborhood. You push it back in your own life. You push it back in the, na- in the nation. Anytime the word of God goes forth, light kicks out the darkness. In the great book of Revelation, that great book of pictures, we see one writing in the early chapters we see one riding on a, on a white horse and we see a sword coming out of his mouth. Later on, we find out that that, that the one riding on the right horse, is, his name is the Word of God. And the picture of the sword coming out of his mouth is a picture of the Word of God coming out of the mouth of Christ. Where does it come from today? I mean, where, where does the rubber hit the road? It comes when the Word of Christ goes through your mouth And out into the world. So we are witnesses. We are testifiers. We are proclaimers of the word. And we are empowered by the spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And so God rules today. He does rule, but he rules through his people. That's what he always intended. He intended to rule through Adam and Eve. He is now ruling through restored human beings who have been forgiven, by the death of Christ and empowered by the spirit of the living God. And so we rule and reign over stuff. So what, what is it that you feel like is your, is your enemy today? Is, is it guilt? Is it shame? Is it fear? Is it depression? Is it confusion? Uh, what, what is it? Where has the enemy come at you and limited you and put, put bonds on you? But where do you need freedom? Let me tell you the good news. As much in bondage as you feel, the good news is your God reigns. If your God is Jesus, if he is the one, you come, if Jesus is the one that you have come to trust as the image of the invisible God, your God reigns. It's not the God of secularism. It's not the God of humanism. It's not the God of socialism. It's, it's, it's not... The, the God of evolutionism. It is your God. The God that's revealed in the scriptures as Jesus Christ. If you don't understand that you need to read more of, of of the of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not just the book of Revelation, but the whole the New Testament as it as it shows he was always the center of everything, Old Testament and New Testament. So your God reigns. That's a first step right there. Your God reigns. You see, if you believe God reigns, there's no reason why you can't trust him to intervene in your life. He has not divorced himself from you. He has not washed his hands from you. He has not sold you into slavery never to redeem you again. He's your God. And he wants you to understand something. He has done everything necessary so that he could say he reigns. And his rule is offered to you. You might remember the story of George Frederick Handel, James Leo Green and his wonderful little book on Isaiah, which by the way, the title of his book is God Reigns. Dr. Green believed that that was a theme of the book of Isaiah and I cannot disagree with it. He tells the story of George Frederick Handel. He was 60 years old, living in London in the 1700s. George Handel was a composer, writer of music, but he he had gone to a hard time. He had had a stroke and was partially paralyzed. Later on, he would become blind. At This time, he was broken, bankrupt, dejected, in depression, and even despairing of life. It was a tough time in his life. He was given a package by a friend, Charles Jennings, and uh, Jennings was an Anglican who had written a piece to answer the, the deist of his day, those who were saying that Jesus was not the son of God. So he went through all of the scriptures and pulled out scriptures that talked about the, the rule of God and the deity of Christ and the beauty of it. And uh, it was chock full of scriptures. And he gave it to Handel and said, I want you to put music to it. He asked him how long it would take, and he estimated one to two years. But Handel started reading this libretto. And as he read, it began to grip him. And for 24 days, he walked the floor, writing, reading, crying, and often being heard to simply whisper, hallelujah. Hallelujah. He couldn't stop. So for 24 days, he wrote. At the end of 24 days, he fell exhausted into his bed. But lying on his desk was the full score to Messiah. 260 pages. When it was first presented in London in 1743, as they reached what's called, what we call the Hallelujah Chorus. The king was so moved that he stood. And of course, all the people joined him in standing. And since then, it's been a tradition that when the Messiah is performed, the audience always stands for the Hallelujah Chorus. For in it, Handel had amplified this truth. The Lord God omnipotent, reigns he's king of kings and lord of lords hallelujah our god reigns forever and ever and ever hallelujah 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 and lived some after then times went up and down but he never forgot what he had learned putting the musical score to that great piece no matter what's going on around you, our God reigns. If God really does reign, if you were to believe that the God we're talking about, known as the Lord Jesus Christ, if he rules over time and rules over history and rules over kings and tyrants and everything in this world, including the forces of hell, if he reigns, Wouldn't it be foolish not to let him rule in your life? What are you going to do? Stand up against him and say, no, I'll be the single exception. You'll not rule in my life. I'm the king. How foolish. If he rules, you can let him rule in your life because his rule produces peace. Oftentimes in the book of Isaiah, the picture of, of what happens when people come to understand this ruling Christ, this ruling servant. Isaiah pictures it as if they went back to the Garden of Eden. The the hills are clapping, the trees are shouting for joy. What he's picturing is the Garden of Eden restored. And so what God is wanting to do in our lives, in your life, is restore the Garden of Eden for you so that you can live in peace And in his definition of prosperity, which has very little to do with how much money you have or what the circumstances are around you, has everything to do with your knowing who you are, how valuable you are to him and knowing that you are his representative on the earth, that you are in his kingdom as subject to him. So I encourage you, to yield to the rule of God in your life. I was struck this week by the testimony of the lady who was testifying in the trial of Dr. Nasser, the man who was convicted of abusing so many women, particularly in the gymnastics program of the United States. And she was the last witness on the trial. And her testimony was as precise and as good a presentation of the gospel as I've ever heard. In fact, I read it and I thought, I wish, I wish the pulpits of America, of the world, would put as much gospel in their message as this woman did in less than five minutes. Some could say, well, if the pulpits won't preach the gospel, then God will make the rocks cry out, even the lawyers, the ladies and attorney. God is raising up people, clergy, non clergy, doesn't matter, who are discovering that God reigns, he rules, and because he rules, he deserves to be worshipped. And because he rules, we get to rule with him. And that there's no time for us to mess around with our own little kingdoms trying to compete with him. He rules and he reigns. He's paid the price to. He owns he owns us by creation and he owns us through redemption. And I would Ask you to consider the fact today that the gospel has come to you and you have to do something with it. Would you believe today? Would you believe the good news? As hard as it might be, would you believe God reigns? Your God reigns. His name is Jesus. He rules, He reigns, and He wants to reign over everything in your own life. I'm going to pray for you to that end. Now, Father, I thank you so much for the word of the gospel by the word that's the sword of the spirit that cuts in every direction and lays bare everything. And I ask you to let that word cut in our lives and expose our unbelief, but expose really how wonderful you are. So I ask you to, to let the good news get through to every ear that's heard this. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been great being with you. Until next time we get together, this is Dudley Hall for Kerygma Ventures. Thank you for listening to this message by Dudley Hall from Kerygma Ventures. Additional copies of this resource, as well as a wide range of discipleship materials, is available from our website. You may make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Dudley Hall or Kerygma Ventures, please visit us online at www dot kerygmaventures dot com. That's K E R Y G M A V E N T U R E S dot com.